This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Trek FM. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome everybody to trek fm's dedicated books and comic show i am one of the hosts here matthew rushing and hold on hold on guys uh we're recording this uh, as we're recording uh, the world series is on so hold on one sec okay never mind uh back to the show i apologize but uh i'm wi- joined as always by some just Absolutely amazing gentlemen, incredible people, men I wish I was, starting with Bruce Gibson. I purposely do not have the World Series on right now because it would be too much of a distraction. What really drives me crazy is the thought that anybody listening to this already knows the outcome of the World Series, you know, because this is past to them. But for us, it's the future. That's right. For them, it's past. For us, it's prologue. So one might say past prologue. We're getting philosophical here. Yeah, I'm we really are. This. We really are. And, of course, that is the dulcet tones of none other than Dan Gunther. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well. I love it. Well, how could I respond to that in any other way? I mean. <laughs> I, 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 it's, I've, I don't know. I, I thought maybe you might do a little Lando. Well, what have we here? Well, what have we here? He pretty much is like Lando. He really is. He's like the Canadian Lando. I can't pull off that mustache. There's no way. (laughs) I want to see it, Dan. I want to see it. I I, I think I'm physically incapable. Um, But yeah, no, it's great to be here as always. Well, Dan, Bruce, I'm so excited that we're here tonight. And part of that reason is because we got some fantastic news for everybody. And the first thing we have in that fantastic news segment is Department of Temporal Investigation, Shield of the Gods. The new ebook is going to be coming out. I'm so excited about this. We're going to have to wait till June, though, to see what's up with the characters here after Time Lock, which kind of gave us that to be continued. Yeah, this is great news, especially, like you said, since we had that sort of a cliffhanger ending or at least, you know, the the possibility for the continuation of that story. And I'm really glad we're getting that. I'm really glad that they didn't just leave it there. Like sometimes some storylines over the years have been left. Uh, we're actually getting a continuation of this. So really excited about that. And a great title, Shield of the Gods. It's it's I'm very it's very enticing. I'm really looking forward to this. 
I feel yeah. like is is it about Norse mythology maybe or something or <laughs> Well at least we don't have time in the title again this time. Oh wait, I said time twice. Uh but so now from what Christopher has said, if you take this upcoming book along with Time Lock and the the one previous to that, the three together, it is like it creates almost like one novel. You could read it like a novel length story. So that's pretty cool. So if you haven't read the previous two, read those right before this one and it's like you read a big novel. What if the Shield of the Gods is time? Hmm. So time is in the title. I'm just saying. Kind of cool. You know what's really cool, too? And fun note for everybody. I know everybody's been super excited that we're getting all of these audiobooks for Star Trek. Guess what? Christopher L. Bennett's new book, Face of the Unknown, getting an unabridged audio version. So celebrations all around for everybody. I mean, I got to say, I think, I don't know if maybe Simon & Schuster has been listening to our show, or they've just been hearing the outcry of fans and people who genuinely need audiobooks because they may happen to be visually impaired. And we have been fighting that fight for a long time on this show. Uh, We've had plenty of listeners reach out to us when we've talked about it, saying how they would love to have that because they would love to read Star Trek books. And, you know, there just wasn't a way for them to do that. This is fantastic news, so I'm really glad that Simon & Schuster has decided to do this. And, you know, with Audible, it's just a great way to to get your content out there. Yeah, this is really cool because, so we've got the Prey trilogy are all going to be done as unabridged audiobooks, and then the book immediately after that, The Face of the Unknown. I really hope this means that every release going forward will get an audio version because... They're so, you know, they're so great just for people who like to listen to audiobooks. And like you say, for those who have difficulty uh, with the printed books, you know, this is a really great opportunity to open up Star Trek literature in ways that, you know, I think are really important. So, yes, excellent news here for sure. Yeah, I think it's a good sign that we're, it's obvious to me that the legacy books must have performed well enough as audiobooks and the sales area so that they saw that hey you know people are wanting these as audiobooks well let's let's do a few more i don't know if they'll do every new book that comes out but it looks it's a good sign that at least maybe half of them or the majority of them will come out as audiobooks and and like you said matthew you can listen to them on audible and you know what if you go to audible you and type in audibletrial.com slash trek fm you can get a free audiobook of your choice if it's your first time subscribing. Yeah, which, I, who knows? It could be Face of the Unknown. Well, guys, I'm really excited about, uh, we've got some fun new comics coming out. They've got some great previews of what we're going to be getting in January. And I gotta say, I know that we talked about this after a show, because we always end up talking before and after a show, because that's just what we do. That Waypoint comic with the Deep Space Nine cast on it, holy Moses, that's awesome. Absolutely. This is the one I'm so incredibly excited about. As you are, Matthew, I'm a huge fan of Deep Space Nine, and seeing these guys back together on the cover of a comic is so exciting. We've got, you know, the late Deep Space Nine versions of these characters in those great First Contact uniforms, and, uh, 
man, I'm, I'm really excited to see what this issue is all about because Deep Space Nine, that just sells it for me right there. Well, all new Deep Space Nine we're getting is in the novels and it's been past the series. So it's great to kind of come back to the series again and see a story that takes place in that time period. Well, the only thing is, is somebody, somebody's missing from this, this comic. I, I, I'm a little, I'm a little sad to see that the whole cast is not on here because I kind of, I, I want this to be like my wallpaper for my phone, and I was just disappointed that we're we're missing somebody. Do you guys notice that? We're missing. Yeah, we. Who? Wait, Dan. Who do you think? I have an answer. Well, we're we're missing a couple people actually. If you want to go by main cast, so we're missing Miles. That's the most glaring omission here. You gotta have some Chief O'Brien love. He's you know the every man of Deep Space Nine. He's just the heart and soul of that station. But we are also missing Jake, which you know maybe some people don't care about as much. But you know what? He's a main cast member. He should be on there too. Yeah, and we're missing Morn. And Morn has never gotten ah. the credit at the beginning of the show like he should have. But I can see why they wouldn't want to put Morn in a comic because he talks so much that he would just take up all the dialogue. So it's probably good that he's not on the cover. He shouldn't just be in the opening credits. He should have, you know, starring Mark Allen Shepard as Morn, also starring Avery Brooks as Benjamin Sisko and the rest. But, I mean, it's more in the show. I mean, he is the central character of Deep Space Nine. I mean, yeah, the guy never talks, but so what? I mean, so? Just, uh, that doesn't mean he's mo- less important than the captain. No, no, no he does he's, talk. We just never hear him on the show. That is true. We he's a big talker him. when we're not around. <laughs> <laughs> and he, and he's still so, got more character development than Harry Kim, so. I yeah, mean, that is true. And so rude. I mean... I mean seriously, guys. If if you're gonna if you're gonna talk on the show, you know you should have your name in lights on the show. So come on. Agreed. We they should. But I'm gonna give you something else that's gonna lighten up your life. We have a new Star Trek Green Lantern Volume Two cover here that we're looking at. And now, Matt, I know that you're big into the comics. Who? No, wait. Who's the main villain in Green Lantern? Uh, that would be Sinestro, which uh, it's great because he's actually on the cover, so I'm very excited about that. And, uh, you know, the last time that we talked about these comics, I was very excited to to read them. I really enjoyed the series. I thought it was a lot of fun. The enjoyable thing is, too, is that, well, I've been leading a lot of Green Lantern comics in general, and I'm getting a just getting really excited to have this series back because again for myself I've really enjoyed it um I thought that what they did the last time was a blast and so I can't wait to see where we go next with uh, the Green Lantern series with Star Trek yeah this is pretty cool that they've basically kind of created their own little continuity within the wider Star Trek con- continuity with the Green Lantern ongoing story so you know it's pretty cool Another thing we have here is uh, a couple of variant covers for issue four of Boldly Go, which is kind of the continuation uh, beyond the ongoing comic series and beyond beyond. Uh, too many beyonds there. but um, That's just beyond comprehension. <laughs> I like Beyonce. Uh, right, right, yep. <laughs> Wrong beyond. Come on, guys, get on track. <laughs> but yeah, some really cool covers here. Uh, one of them, I should warn you, there's a bit of a spoiler if you haven't been reading the, uh, if you haven't read the first issue of Boldly Go, 
bit of a spoiler here, but we get a uh, a Borgified Spock by the looks of it on issue four. So this uh, current story they're doing uh, looks to continue at least through four issues, uh, if this is any indication. Well, at this point, we've only read issue one. And like you're saying, this is issue four cover. So, you know, it's it looks like we're going to get Borg, but, you know, maybe it's not on the surface like we think. Maybe maybe it's not just, you know, the Borg show up in the cube and fight the Enterprise in the Kelvin timeline. Maybe there's something a little more going on that's connected to the Borg. I don't know. I'm kind of keeping my uh, my mind open that this might be something different and not just a straightforward Borg story. I mean, I don't know. I'm having flashbacks to Voyager. That's right. Two Voyager references in one sentence. Oh, please tell me that they're not going to, you know, willingly become bored to defeat them. I don't know if I can handle that. But I just, I hope it's good. Um, I'm really hoping that the series is good. And uh, it'll be interesting to to see what happens uh, and, and how they you know, work this because I, again, um, I, I think this is a thing where it, it's really difficult. You're going to bring the Borg in. You got to make, uh, them feel like they fit and feel fresh somehow, which honestly I think is just going to be a tough thing for anybody to do. But I want to trust this writing staff to be able to do it. And so I have high hopes that it'll be good. And so, um, yeah, Prove me, prove, prove my hopes right, guys. So that's that's all I'm hoping. Well, in other news, we have one last thing that I'm really excited to talk about because there's actually a Star Trek comic art exhibit in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, as we speak right now. It started on October 28th, and it runs through January 15th of 2017. And you can actually go to the Toonzeum, you know, it's like cartoon and museum in one, Toonzeum, in Pittsburgh to see a tribute to this Star Trek franchise in comic arts. And this is all part of like a STEM career initiative that they're doing. So it's somewhat educational and it has inspired uh, professionals to, to do Star Trek themes and comics and whatever. I don't know, but it's something you definitely want to check out. And I have a business trip. I'm going to plan to Pittsburgh to go see this. If anybody wants to go with me, Tweet me because maybe we can meet up there because I'd love to walk through it with somebody than just by myself. That's really All cool, Bruce. By himself. <laughs> Bruce don't want to be all by himself. Sorry, guys. My bad. <laughs> Never apologize for singing. It's it's a joy and we're going to miss it. Um, <laughs> oh, there are but, other people who are like, oh, thank God it's going to be gone. <laughs> Oh, We'd never yeah. say that. I've been taking singing lessons, so when you're gone, we can sing. Aw, well, that'll be great. Aww. I'll be excited that somebody else I mean, be singing, yay. and I'll just get to listen. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, Bruce, that sounds absolutely incredible. Um, you'll definitely have to share your experiences with us uh, when you get back. Yeah, anybody who's in the Pittsburgh area, check this out. This looks really great. Well, guys, uh, I think that's all that we have in news today, but... Um, couple of things for everybody, of course, uh, that we want to let you know about us and where to find us so that if you're excited about the network or just want to know more about us, you can find all that out. Best place to go, you can start off at our website at trek.fm. That's a 
great place to start. Uh, you can find out a lot of information about all the different podcasts we have, and we really we have so many. I mean, it's I <laughs> I kind of get lost sometimes in how many we actually have. So be sure to check all of that out at trek.fm. Of course, we're on Twitter at trek.fm, and we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And Bruce, uh, you know, if they'd like to have a good conversation with us, there's there's a really good place to do that over on Facebook. Uh, where can they find us? Well, they can find us by searching in Facebook for the Babel Conference. Now, type Babel Conference in that search field, and it'll take you there where you can join, and you'll be accepted in the group where you can talk with other Trek FM listeners. This is a private group for just Trek FM listeners so we can talk about Star Trek day and night. And trust me, we do. There's always conversations happening there. And uh, yeah, two in the morning, I'm there talking about Star Trek. Absolutely. Now, Dan, there's one more great place that you can find us, and that is Goodreads. Absolutely, Matthew. If you go to goodreads.com and search for Literary Treks, you'll find our group there. Uh, In that group, just ask to join and one of us will let you in right away. We have bookshelves in that group covering all of the books we've previously talked about on the show, as well as a currently reading section so you know what's coming up for future shows. And of course, there are always great conversations happening about all the books and comics that make up the entire Star Trek universe happening in our Goodreads group. There is not much in this world, guys, that I like more than when we get together to talk about a Star Trek book. Now, on top of that, there's not much more that I like in this world than getting together with you guys, talking about a Star Trek book, and that book happens to be by Kirsten Beyer. And who would have thunk, that's right, that it's a Voyager book. And we are talking Children of the Storm tonight, and I'm so excited to jump into this one. I wanted to tackle with you guys something that we have mentioned over and over again and I think I finally figured out what it is for me that, that makes me love Kirsten's books. And I wanted to see if you guys agree. But I think that not only do Kirsten's books usually have a great Star Trek style story, you know, like it feels Star Trek-y. But I think it's, it's the fact that that's coupled with incredible character development. And even characters to which we really don't know all that well. Because one of the things about Children of the Storm is that there are a lot of characters in there that we're just really getting to know on a lot of these ships that are a part of this fleet. But for some reason, I'm not frustrated or bored. Everybody has a story that I want to keep following. And I think that's something that's really, really special about what she does with her books. There's definitely something to that for sure. Uh, Kirsten Beyer, like you said, really does Star Trek well. But yeah, her characters are incredible. And I think we've we've talked a lot about making characters that we've previously not had a lot of cares about, like Chakotay or Harry Kim, and really fleshing them out and bringing them to life and making us care about them. But like you say, characters we've never even met before have these very layered stories to them. And there's this sense of history with those characters there and a rich and full backstory that a lot of times you don't get with secondary characters that are newly introduced. So for example, uh, the 
captain of the Quirinal, I think I'm pronouncing that right, um, and her uh, chief medical officer. You get this this sense that there's this deep, lasting friendship between them. They've served for a long time together. Uh, just little touches like that that make these people seem very real. And then by the end of the story, people that you really care about. Uh, I, I think, yeah, she's she's a master at being able to craft characters that by the end of the story, I want to spend more time with. I think we've mentioned this uh, once before on a previous episode of her writing about the characters. But the one thing I want to emphasize with it, which I think we're leaving out on this, and Dan, you kind of touched on it a little. I think she's very good at writing character relationships. The characters are very well developed, but she knows how to re uh, write relationships between characters. She gives the characters and the relationships a history and then she has conflict within those relationships. And when I say conflict, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're, they're having an argument or, or some huge disagreement. But there's enough conflict there that each of the characters in the relationships have to work through that together with each other. And so, to me, that really rounds out the characters when they have someone to play off of. And then even when you read Children of the Storm, there's so many scenes where you can pinpoint these two characters have a scene, then these two characters have a scene, and it seems like she's coupled character with another character throughout the novel and I think just I would I would be fine reading a Star Trek book by Kirsten Beyer that was just people sitting around a table having dinner or playing poker I think that would be enough because she does so well with those relationships no I I agree with you and I, I think that that's when I'm, I'm I'm reading her books and there's a character like O'Donnell or Fife or um, I'm uh, Gwen or any of these characters even Cambridge. I mean, all of them are just, I feel like, so utterly fascinating. And I really do. I want to continue to follow them because she's writing them in a way that makes me excited to, to continue, to, to understand where they're coming from, what's going on with them. Uh, and I just, I love that about the story. And I think it, again, I think it's something that's kind of special about her books because, you know, in a lot of ways, it could be it could be frustrating to, to be reading these books and you know, whatever, you know, you just, OK, it's about this character. And that's, you know, that's not Tom Paris, you know, that's not Torres. But I never get that feeling. And I think that's very special that. She's making the character she's creating for the series just as exciting, and I like that. Um, and and it it makes the reading of these books so enjoyable because there's something new being added. But at the same time, I think also what makes her book special is that there's this connection with a crew that we already know. But again. I was just, I even wrote a note in the book about how shocked I was about how much depth there is to all of the characters from Voyager, you know? And, and I think mm -hmm. that's, again, we talk about that a lot in her books, but I just, I continue, we want to stress that because I, again, I think it's something that's different. It's, it's, it's unique to Kirsten. Uh, and I, you know, 
I, when somebody does that, I want I feel like they should be praised for the work that they do. And so uh, this one really struck me because, uh, yeah, man, as much as I was enjoying the story about, you know, Chakotay and with Tom and Bellana and Meral, I was fascinated by Eden, you know, and I just thought that was, I mean, so again, uh, we're gushing and I apologize. Well, I'm not going to apologize for that, <laughs> but I, I love it. Uh, I really do love it. Definitely. And I think Bruce really hit on something. You hit on something really great there about the relationships between the characters. And, you know, not only the times where it brings out conflict, and there's there's tons of examples of that. I mean, you've got Balana and uh, Drafar, you know, and even Balana and Paris kind of, you know, having a little bit of typical marital stuff that they realize they're going through and Chakotay and Eden and of course Fife and O'Donnell being a major one but also the relationships that highlight how far these characters have come especially the ones we know from the Voyager series I'm thinking specifically of scenes like like I mentioned like uh Paris and Torres kind of coming to an accord when they have a little bit of a fight and, and bonding over Miral and, and I love that. But to me, the perfect example of this is when the doctor is uh, showing Bolana all of the little playthings and educational stuff he's done for Miral. And he's so momentarily disappointed that she isn't able to stay for you know that day or whatever and it just it was so true to their characters and i just found myself grinning through that whole part that you know i i love the relationships these characters have built and kirsten Beyer has expanded on those and highlighted them and made them so much more important uh that it's just an absolute joy to read well, you were, as you were talking, it also dawned on me that so many of these relationships, everybody seems to counsel each other. I mean, we do have Counselor Cambridge on on the on Voyager, but have you noticed just about in all these relationships, you know, Eden is counseling Chakotay, but then in scenes Chakotay is counseling Eden and and so on and so forth with all these different relationships. And you mentioned about um Balana and Jafar. Commander Jafar, and she's kind of counseling him when it comes to, you know, him being around children. And it's just, it's like everybody's kind of looking out for one another, even if they don't get along, they're, they're trying to help one another out. And I think that's important too, in the relationships, even though you might have the conflict, they're trying to get beyond that. And I think that's what really registers then with these characters, because we like them and the reason we like them is because they seem to care. And that's what Star Trek characters do. Starfleet officers care. And that is what really helps round out these characters in a likable way for us. That would be a perfect recruitment advertisement in the 24th century. Join Starfleet. Starfleet officers care. I love that. That's great. <laughs> it's almost it's almost like they're wanting you to join their bank or something, you know, like <laughs> No, I, I completely agree with you though, and you're absolutely right. Uh I, I think this is something that uh it is really special about this this crew and where they are and, and who they are, you know. I mean, I think that's one of the things that people really loved about Voyager was the the family aspect of them. And so I, it makes complete sense. 
that you know these these characters um would have that kind of care you know if they didn't and all that they had been through there'd be something wrong with them you know like just they're they're it just wouldn't be right, you know? And so I, I think that you're absolutely correct in saying this is this is just what makes them, I think, so cool. And it's somebody and, and characters that to which we can relate to. And, and, and I like that it's not all melodramatic all the time. I, I think that's one of the things, kind of diving a little even deeper into one of the characters, which really, I think, we all enjoyed it seems like was Eden and I love the way that you guys put this on the outline the way to Eden (laughs) because Chakotay is having a very difficult time understanding her style you know he's so used to Janeway and what she would do and how they would interact he's having to to learn a whole new person to serve under, you know, to, to, to take orders from and when he can speak up, when he can't speak, you know, all of those kind of things. And I found her to be really fascinating. And maybe it's because when I was reading her, I felt like she was almost a mirror for Janeway, but in a really good way. Like she was not making the same mistakes we would see a Janeway make. And I thought that was really, really interesting to be able to watch in this. Uh, and I thought it was really fascinating. So I, I really enjoyed getting to know this character more because she, you know, let's put it this way. When I first read this book, for all I knew, Eden was it. You know, that's who was going to be the captain of, of this fleet, the, the fleet commander. I had no idea at this point, you know, that, that Janeway would come back. And I love that Kirsten makes me fall in love with her. Like, I really love this character. I love her because I think we relate to her also through Chakotay. He comes to accept the fact that she's in charge of the full circle fleet. And that's a position that really Janeway should have had. And his loss of Janeway really affected him but he has come around to accept her death accept the fact that you know she's out of his life and he has to move on and now he's got to look at this person that's in the place that really Janeway should have been in and he accepts her and she's very much like Janeway uh there's a lot of similarities between the two characters in their command style but he sometimes questions her decisions because I think he looks at her and says well I don't think Catherine would have done that. And that's not really fair to her. And I think she kind of points that out to him. And there's the fact that, you know, you, you, if, if Janeway were to say, do this, she probably would have accepted it. But because Janeway's not here and I'm saying you're, you may be questioning it. So you just need to let go of Janeway and accept me for who I am and my command decisions. And yeah, go ahead and, and disagree if you need to disagree. But this is Captain Eden you're dealing with, not Captain Janeway. And they really have a nice bonding relationship, especially when you get to the end of this novel. And I really do love Captain Eden. I think the last book we read, I said, 
I wasn't quite sold on her yet. Like I, I liked her, but I really wasn't invested in her. By the time I get to this novel, I'm really invested in her. And yeah, I would like to have more Captain Eden books. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, their relationship is, you know, it really does come uh, full circle, I guess, interestingly. Uh, but yeah, and, it, whoa, and it's really whoa, whoa. interesting. Was that a joke? Yeah, I don't know if that qualifies as a joke. <laughs> <laughs> I can do better than that if I'm not making anyway. You guys are great. <laughs> you know, that relationship, it's interesting as well at one point where uh Eden kind of comments that, you know, with Janeway, it would have been, you know, Chicote that was kind of opting for the safer route. Whereas, you know, that kind of seems almost flipped around in a couple instances in this novel. And I thought that was really interesting that not only is there kind of that mirroring of Janeway's role in Eden, but kind of almost a juxtaposition of the roles that Janeway and Chakotay usually had when they were at odds over a decision, like in Scorpion or um, Equinox, for example. I, I think the thing that, that, for me, that jumped out so much about Eden was not only obviously her command style and the way that she was making decisions and the fact that she was really standing up for the best of what the Federation believes in, which I thought was wonderful. But I also love that we don't just drop that mystery about who she is and where she comes from. That really gets heightened here. And I thought that was a really interesting thing too because Eden is a mystery box just like a J.J. film. <laughs> and there's there's all of this about her that we don't understand and that she doesn't even understand about herself. And I love that that wasn't something, and, and this is another great thing about Kirsten, she never lets anything go because nothing is extraneous. Nothing is done like, oh, you know, oh, six books later, I forgot to pick that up. No, you know, like, and I like that that's a part of this story. And I, I found that really fascinating. And I loved the interplay between her and Cambridge on that too. I thought it was great. Yeah, she's developed a really strong relationship with not only Chicote, but with Cambridge. And, and the Cambridge relationship was built on prior to these books. They have, they have that history in their relationship. And really, a lot of people didn't accept Cambridge when he first joined the fleet. Because uh, he's kind of a jerk, but he's a, actually a very good counselor, very intelligent. He just has a different way about himself, and I think people have come to accept that and like that about him. And somebody really has learned to like him quite a bit. Actually, bit of a crush. Now, who do you think would have a thing for such an arrogant, pompous? counselor trying to help people on a starship i mean who would go for something like that well i mean obviously hmm you know who who do we know that's been a little bit cold and distant you know over the time they've uh they've been a character and so we're talking about seven obviously and i just i want to say that you know i've read this novel before so i knew you know it was coming but I still laughed out loud at that scene in Astrometrics 
And she just straight up says to him, you're an ass. <laughs> just picturing seven of nine saying that to someone. I just I, I love where her character has gone and uh, how this relationship between the two of them evolves. And it feels very real in a, in a kind of an odd way because you wouldn't expect that to. It's almost like an old movie to me. It's like her saying to him, you know what? You're an ass, but kiss me anyway. <laughs> you know? It's funny that you say that because all I can think of, uh, they're having that conversation where he apologizes and she's about to say something and he, he puts his finger on her lips and he says, let me stop you from saying something that you'll regret later on. And it's the exact same thing that happens in You've Got Mail with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. And their relationship is just like them oh, because yeah. they hated mm. each other at the beginning of the movie. And then, of course, they love each other by the end. And that's exactly what's happening with Cambridge and Seven. And so I, kind of, it's kind of funny to think of, I kind of think of him in like a Tom Hanks way now. Like Cambridge huh. looks like Tom Hanks. And came and, and and that's the great thing about Tom Hanks is that he can kind of be jackassy mm -hmm. and still be lovable all at the same time. So I I love it. I their relationship just had me grinning from ear to ear with the way that it's come about, and it makes sense that Seven would be attracted to somebody who is so comfortable in their own skin that knows themselves in and out and accepts their own faults for who, you know, Cambridge knows exactly who he is. He knows what all of his faults are. And yet he's over, he's not overconfident. He's just confident anyway. And I think that's something that Seven wants to be. And, it, and I, of course that's attractive to her. And their relationship is, is fantastic. I mean, yeah, the reason, yeah, that she can call him an ass. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Who else could bring that out in seven? Like, that's amazing. <laughs> Not Chakotay. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> well, they both bring a more human side to each other because she is very cold and she's now deborgified in a sense from the events of destiny. And Cambridge, we've come to get to know more that he's, you know, not just as much of an ass as as he appears on the surface so we're peeling the layers off of these characters and realizing that you know they are more human and they're bringing that human aspect out of each other which is really nice to see in those two interplay i like this relationship a lot better than seven with chakotay that just seemed you know kind of forced in the series it was okay but this seems so maybe because it was forced in the series <laughs> <laughs> Hey, these two characters haven't been together. Let's just throw them together with somebody. Um, all right, these two. Well, at least it wasn't Neelix. <laughs> oh, God. Um, <laughs> I feel like, just to kind of go on a tangent here, you know, Chakotay and Seven together, like, what, what, what was that? Like, they're both kind of wooden and unemotional, but for very different reasons. Like, who ever thought that would be a good idea? Anyway, sorry. I, I don't know. So, okay. Well, we could... Wow. Whew, um, we could keep talking about uh, Seven and them all, all the time. But it's really interesting, I, I think, this whole idea of the life, you know, and the children of the storm, uh, which I like to think of as intergalactic tinkerbells, 
because they can only have one emotion at a time, which made it really fun to think of them as almost like fairies in space. Space fairies. Anyway, I I love this creation because it is so ridiculously Star Trek to think of just something so out there. You know, I mean, the fact that that these are all birthed by a larger version of them as basically thoughts. It gets really esoteric, but it never feels unaccessible in any way. And I think that's something that's really, really cool about the story here because it is very alien as a life form, and yet it also seems kind of familiar all at the same time. Yeah, I mean, you know, the children of the storm are truly alien, and it it lends itself to a, a very Star Trek story in that, you know, we're able to come to an understanding with these creatures that are so vastly alien from ourselves. You know, and, and that's something that I think Kirsten is just really able to bring across in this novel. You know, there's there's a reason that I you know, jumping ahead to what I think about the book. Uh, I think this is my absolute favorite novel by Kirsten Beyer, which is a very, very high bar. And uh, it, it it's just such an incredible amount of imagination to come up with this, even though, you know, certain things about it seem familiar. It's just so out there and so cool and just a, a really great way to tell a really lovely at its heart, very Star Trek story. Yeah, these fairies, <laughs> I didn't think of it as fairies, but you're right. They're like, you know, just glowing balls. They're like fairies. They are just in this singular emotional state. They each have their own play. I mean, you know, it can be angry. It could be sad. Whatever the emotion is, It each of these balls of light, which has different beings within them, uh, have a certain purpose of their own. They kind of have their own functions. So when they meet together, they can couple together with the functions of what they're trying to accomplish. It's a little bit complicated. I'm probably not explaining it that well. That's why you really need to read the book. But, you know, they get to a point where they feel threatened because the Borg has come to the realm of space at one point and was destroying life on planets. And, and not talking about intelligent life, but just, you know, anything that is life plant life and because they destroyed all the plant life this really upset the children of the storm so when we have our fleet come in they see them as a threat they're opposed threat like the borg to them and so they were able to destroy the borg when they came into the realm of space now they're going to be after our starfleet uh starships that are coming in and they actually do destroy one of them but they don't destroy another one because it has the life on there. It has plant life on there. And that's something that they want to bring back. And, and it's something that they're entertained with. Which was really kind of weird. Because it's like the lights. The, these balls are going to ignore trying to destroy a starship. Because they're entertained by life. And so now the crew's running around trying to plant seeds. And, and grow plants to try to protect themselves. And, and continue to live on. And I mean, I can go on and on and on because that's part of the story. But it, it's it was it's a little strange, but it's very interesting. It was in some ways, it's a little fun to read that. And uh, um, then we meet the mom. 
<laughs> but she's not really a mom. <laughs> but it's a, again, it's like a, it's like this planet. That's where these thoughts, as Matthew was saying, the the thoughts of this being create these balls of energy or whatever that come out of it that it's just the thoughts that are, that are coming out have been around for years and years and years i just realized these these are just the guys from inside out like they're just even yes. just separate emotion <laughs> no you're right it is like that i and oh, you know now hilarious. that you say that i did i thought that at one point because you know even on inside out they have the little balls of emotions or whatever feelings they but <laughs> i thought that at one point and i forgot about that but it is like that you get the sadness one. It's like, oh, the Borg destroyed all the plants. Then you just get the one that's really angry. <laughs> I'm going to destroy them all. <laughs> I think the thing that, that makes these aliens so cool, too, is the way in which they have a very alien way of viewing life. You know, and I thought that was what was so cool for them you know, we talk about the life, it's the simple life. It's what we think of as simple, but it gives them immense joy and pleasure to be around, which is plants and growing things. And the Borg came in and destroyed all of that in the system in which they lived. And that's what's led to the despair of the mother. That's what's led to the children of the storm being so hostile to anybody coming into their system because they equate everybody else with the Borg. And I think that was fascinating to see, you know, and I, you know, there's a, a nice environmental message in there too, that I think Kirsten is reminding us that we need to be good stewards of the earth in which we live because we're all a part of, you know, life together here on the planet. And, to not just willy-nilly destroy things for no good reason. I mean, no strip mining, you know, just come on, be smart about this human beings. So I really, I liked that connection as well. And it's not over the top. It's just, it's, it's just right there. And it it is a great reminder of what we as human beings are supposed to be, which is good stewards of the earth and to take care of it because that's our home. And so I, I, I thought that was really nice in, in conjunction with, you know, these aliens who had their whole life, their whole way of life stripped away from them by the Borg. And it was interesting to see, too, the way in, in which the Borg have affected species, you know, beyond humanoids. You know, they, they've had... and just. A, so when you think of like de- trying to destroy the Borg, it really just doesn't make you feel bad for the Borg, you know? The fact that if they had gotten wiped out by some sort of, you know, plague or, you know, Picard had said the virus or any of those kind of things, it, it just, it really doesn't. It doesn't make you feel bad, so. Yeah, and I mean, that environmental message you're talking about, you know, that's just another way in which this story is very, uh, a very Star Trek story. I mean, that's been a part of Star Trek stories you know, very obviously Star Trek for the voyage home, you know, being good stewards of the earth and the idea of unintended consequences, you know, the Borg rampaging across the galaxy. We think of their effect as being, you know, wiping out civilizations and species, but, you know, this was a huge, you know, unintended side effect of that is wiping out this simple life that 
means so much to these creatures uh and you know is is important is very important and something that you know maybe isn't foremost on your mind when you're thinking about you know matters of life and death and that sort of thing but you know they can have a huge impact on life you know so it, it it's a really great message that i think like you said is subtle but it's definitely there i was a bit surprised that officers weren't more upset about these hostile children of the storm because they did destroy a starship and all the lives aboard there and i mean i i felt like they were doing everything they could to protect themselves and to get away from this alien race and then try to figure out the alien race and communicate with it and do everything that you're supposed to do in star trek but i don't feel like there was enough hurt anger whatever hatred in them about this being that is just killing them for we don't know whatever reason but they killed a whole starship of people i just felt like there should have been a little more weight to that um and and maybe even trying to overcome that that anger and and try to push it aside but making that very difficult to do because they've lost their friends and i that that's the one piece that that I just felt like was missing. I don't know if you guys felt that same way too. It just, it seemed to like, Oh, Oh, they destroyed the ship. Well, we got to protect ourselves and let's figure out this alien race. I, I think for me, I didn't think about that as much because it was a starship that I didn't really know anybody on. And, and that's my fault for not thinking like that because yeah, it's just a starship of people we didn't really know. Uh, <laughs> and, and uh, when I think about it, Neither really did anybody else in the fleet because they haven't been out there that long. But I I think that is where you see Fife and O'Donnell having their battle because I think Fife is very much in that camp. You know, he's the one who sees them as dangerous and doesn't trust them and is angry about losing the ship. And And I so I... That's where I really picked up on that. And I also actually picked up on that, I think, with Chakotay, who is much more standoffish when it comes to, you know, reaching out with an olive branch or taking a chance with these aliens. So those two characters, I felt like, were the ones that were kind of portraying that kind of feeling. So, um, but I understand what you're saying, Bruce. You know, uh, that is one of the things about Star Trek uh, characters. You know, they do tend to um, a lot of times be a little bit more forgiving than maybe we would. And I guess maybe that's probably what they're trying to say is that hopefully we've maybe evolved in the future. So I don't know. I, I, what do you think, Dan? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I certainly see your point there, Bruce. And we do get that perspective, like Matthew says, through Fife and uh, also the character who first came in telepathic contact with the creatures, you know, makes a very impassioned plea to Eden to, you know, abandon Demeter and leave because they, they're too dangerous and they can't be reasoned with and that sort of thing. But yeah, that that's an interesting point I hadn't thought of to see that kind of wrestling with we have to try and have an accord with these aliens, but I, I'm so angry about what they've done. That That's an interesting point that I hadn't really thought of. And again, I think that's a bit of a failing 
on my part, not really getting to know Captain Tamar and the the crew of his ship all that well, and not really thinking about that for sure. I, I think part of the point of the book is to show that going down that path is ultimately self-defeating. Um, for example, with Fife, he just gets lost in himself with how much hatred he ends up having so much so that like, and I highlighted this part because this kind of blew my mind when O'Donnell is outside the ship trying to uh, inject the life into the bubble of the children of the storm, which is a weird sentence. I never, ever thought I'd hear myself say, um, <laughs> he thinks to himself that his only solace was his absolute certainty that once O'Donnell left the ship, the odds of his safe return were infinitesimal. So at this point, he's actually hoping that his commanding officer is killed so that he can retaliate in full force against the children of the storm. And it's just, it's amazing how far down that path he goes in his own mind and how how much those feelings of hatred just end up consuming him and having him make decisions that, you know, we would certainly say are not befitting of a Starfleet officer. And I think the book was really trying to say that that, you know, that way lies madness and that's not the solution. Weapons of war should be, you know, tools of last resort kind of thing. I thought that Fife was driven, his madness is driven more so about his opinions of the craziness that's in O'Donnell and less mm -hmm. about how he feels his hatred on the children of the storm. I think he does definitely hate the children of the storm, but I think a lot of his, his judgment at this point was trying to be always counterintuitive to what O'Donnell is trying to do because O'Donnell is not on that ship to be a technical officer. He is captain of the ship, but he was, he was placed there because he's a top genetic biologist and they have all these plants, the life on the ship and Fife is there to make sure that he addresses everything from a technical advantage. But when O'Donnell starts to step in and makes the command decisions, I think Fife is looking at this and like, no, I'm supposed to make those decisions. I don't trust him. He's crazy. He's nuts. He talks to himself. He's talking to his dead wife, <laughs> to himself. The guy doesn't have his head straight. And he, lose confidence. he loses confidence in O'Donnell, which I don't think he ever really had in the first place. So I feel like a mm -hmm. lot of Fife's actions were almost like, okay, I know this is going to sound silly, but it's almost, it made me think this. Fife made me think of Barney Fife on the Andy Griffith show. And there's times that Sheriff Andy wants to do something. Barney Fife's like, no, Andy, we got to do something else instead. You know, <laughs> then we find out that Sheriff Andy Taylor was correct and O'Donnell was right. And Fife was wrong. I never, <laughs> I never thought of that with the Andy Griffith show. That's brilliant. And yeah, that's a, that's definitely a very good point. Um, he is absolutely driven by his complete lack of confidence in O'Donnell, which, you know, O'Donnell's a little bit inside his head and doesn't really share as much as he probably should. But also I think at that point that, you know, Fife was so far gone at that point, it wouldn't even matter. I think what O'Donnell said, he would think the guy's crazy. Absolutely. That's a very good point. Well, and one of the things that I, I liked about the story was the way in which O'Donnell really exemplifies the best of Starfleet. Even though he is eccentric, 
because he's a genius. And yes, he's talking to his dead wife. I love that we're shown why he's doing that, one, because and how horrible it was what happened to them. Um, but two, I, I loved that he forgives Fife. He doesn't really punish him. He talks to him. He treats him almost as a, a, a father would treat a son in some ways. That's the counseling I was, thing I was talking about earlier. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I just think it's fascinating, and I really love that because it opened up O'Donnell as a character, and I I really loved it. Um, and then on top of that, I, I'm just, I loved getting to know more about what had happened to him. And for me, the most beautiful phrase in the book was when he talks about how he had a daughter and that she lived inside his wife for seven months before she died. And I thought, wow, that's a statement. Yeah, absolutely. And also to your point of uh, O'Donnell forgiving Fife, this is another way in which I think this book is absolutely brilliant because I'm, as a reader, reading this and thinking the whole time, oh, I can't wait until... Fife gets his and he gets snapped back so hard and, and, you know, gets sent back to the Alpha Quadrant in shame because of what he's done and put everybody in danger. And then O'Donnell forgives him and they have that, that great understanding between them. And I, as a reader, kind of am taken aback and realize I was feeling vindictive and revenge seeking as well. And Dang it, Kirsten, you you did it to me again and showed that, no, that's not the right way to handle things. And, you know, maybe I think Fife got off a little easy, but at the same time, the end result, you can't argue with it. And the thing, everything's resolved and in a much better way, I think, than it would have been had I been the one making the decision about what happened with Fife there. And that really says something to me, too, that you know, oh man, that that's another way in which these ideals can really be put to the test is how do you treat someone who you feel has put everyone in danger and done wrong? You know, how do you treat them? A captain is responsible for the actions of his or her crew. And I think that's why O'Donnell let Fife off easy. Because you're right, he was left off easy for this, but I think O'Donnell is taking the blame for it. O'Donnell blames himself that he should have mm-hmm. communicated more effectively with Fife, made sure that they both came to an understanding, made sure that that everything was in line because O'Donnell thinks that Fife reacted the way he did because he didn't handle Fife correctly and he didn't handle the command of that situation correctly. So I think he let Fife off the hook because I think he feels like, O'Donnell feels like it's his fault for what happened. And I like that too, you know, that like you're saying, Bruce, the idea of just taking personal responsibility for the things that you are responsible for. And the fact that him and Fife didn't have a good working relationship uh, and, and find a way to build trust, especially since they do have a very unique command structure, is partly, I think, O'Donnell's fault for just not spending the time to get to know this man who they really do, and in a lot of ways, they need to trust each other more than just about any other captain-first officer relationship. So I thought that that you're absolutely right and made for a really fascinating 
story point with these two characters who, again, are completely new characters to us. I mean, yeah, we we had them in Unworthy and, and some a little bit in full circle, but, you know, we're, we're just starting to get to know them, and I think it, it makes for a really fascinating story that they're interesting. I think one of the things that uh, I like about this book, and, and you were talking about this earlier, and I think that kind of sums up the, the whole thing, is that, you know, it this book is really Star Trek. You know, the, the idea of approaching the thing that scares you, but not letting that fear rule you, you know, and, and putting your best foot and your best ideals forward and following those and it's a really interesting thing when you think that these characters have just been involved with the worst massacre the federation has ever known with the borg and and this is this is where they're trying to go out and go back to not being driven by their fear and i love that i i think that that this book is key to seeing that happen in the Star Trek universe that has had just one thing after the other awful happen recently. Yeah, and, and, you know, going back to something Bruce said about counseling, like this is almost a case where all of Starfleet and the Federation, you know, needs a bit of counseling here. And, and Fife is kind of the embodiment of, you know, this new generation of Starfleet officers that, you know, the only Starfleet they've really known or the one they've known for most of their career has been the one that's been, you know, massacred by the Borg and gone through the Dominion War and just, you know, kind of one conflict after another, culminating in billions dead. I mean, that's just, that's that's unimagin- an unimaginable scale of destruction that they've been through. And this kind of idea that this old guard of Starfleet officer like O'Donnell, you know, kind of from the, the generation of, of Picard in, in TNG, you know, the diplomat, the, uh, the explorer, as opposed to the soldier. And it really, it's an interesting point in the Federation's history, you know, like Valeris said in Star Trek six, a turning point has been reached in the affairs of the Federation, you know, and, and we've come to it again here, you know, will they go out and seek out new life and new civilizations and and be brave explorers willing to face down threats, not immediately going for the phasers and photon torpedoes, but instead being thoughtful and engaging and open-minded. And that to me is, I mean, I'm getting a little bit starry-eyed and, and, you know, overly optimistic here, but that to me is what Star Trek is. And Star Trek's a lot of things to a lot of people. A lot of people really like the war stories and the battles, and, and there's a place for that too, for sure. But for me, Star Trek is a template on how to live your life, how to be a better person and a better human race. And I just love that the message of this novel, at least to me, seems to be pushing that idea forward. I vote for Dan for president. That's all I have to say, because (laughs) everything you just said was perfect. Like, I don't even want to say anything after that, because it's exactly how I feel. I mean, we don't good Star Trek doesn't always have to be, 
you know, a villain trying to destroy Earth or the Federation. I mean, it's just about exploring. It's about the human condition. And it's about, yeah, it's, it's modeling what we really need to be doing in our own lives to make humanity and the people around us and everything a better place. I guess there's only one thing left for us to talk about, and that is probably what we would rate Children of the Storm. Well, I think it's probably going to be no surprise because I've mentioned earlier in the podcast, I think this is Kirsten Byer's best book to date. I absolutely love this story. Uh, I, I, I can't really say much more than I've already said about it. It typifies to me what Star Trek is all about. And I think a, a work of Star Trek fiction can receive no higher praise for me. So I would definitely give this one an entire sphere full of freshly bloomed new species of flowers that seed galactic peace across the universe for all time. Very good. Well, I would say that I, uh, I really don't have that much more to say, except that I really do enjoy the book. I think uh, each of these stories are getting better and better in the series, or at least I'm getting more invested even into the characters. So maybe that's even why it feels like they're getting better and better. So I would say that I would give this a full army of pixies and fairies. I'm right there with you guys. I think this one is fantastic. I love this book. I'm so glad we're we're back rereading them. And man, um, rating wise, I think I'm just gonna have to say this is four and a half out of five raised starships. What an incredible story too about a starship that they crash and then they fix up without going to starbase. Pretty awesome. Well, I think we're all pretty much agreed on Kirsten Byers' skills as a writer, for sure, and also uh, the place uh, that this novel has in her repertoire. I think we all came away thinking this was a pretty great example of a great Star Trek story. Those books are so good that I really want to move on to the next one, The Eternal Tide, but I've read it before. I want to reread it again, but... We've already done that on the show before Dan and I were ever on. That was episode two of Literary Trek. So if anybody wants to hear the next book, go back to episode two and hear Chris and Matt talk about that book. And if you'll do that, you'll be going full circle. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I love the fact that we've gone back and done this, you know, with Kirsten being on the writing staff now. We've covered all of her Voyager books, which is fantastic. I guess... She did have one other in the String Theory series, and we haven't covered that one, but we've covered all the relaunch, and that's really wonderful to have done, especially since we'll have the new one coming out next year. But really so thankful for everybody on Patreon and our associate producers through Patreon who help make sure that this show and each and every other show on the network keeps coming to you every week. We've got Brandon Shamatella, Ken Tripp, Bruce Gibson, and Norman Lau. Thank you so much, guys, for uh, your support of the network. Now, they know we're a listener-supported network, and that means that we definitely cannot make this happen without listeners just like them. Every little bit helps, so go over to patreon.com slash and see how you can become part of the team and make sure that everything that we do here on Trek FM can continue. Now, guys, been a blast talking about uh, this book. 
Now, Bruce, when you're not busy rebuilding crashed starships, where can we find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. Put that underscore in there, Admiral underscore Rex. And uh, you can also find me talking Star Wars with Riley and Mark on the Star Wars Report podcast. And Dan, when you're not being an ass and hitting on Seven of Nine, where can people find you? Such language from that former drone. I was really surprised at that. Well, when I'm not doing that, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can find me on YouTube at youtube.com slash Productions. And on my website, treklit.com, where I review Star Trek novels, both old and new. And Matthew, when you're not encouraging Morale Paris to go ahead and slam that chair repeatedly into a wall, where can we find you? Well, it's just fun. It annoys the four, so I love it. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. I'm here on the network doing The Orb with Chris Jones, where we talk about Deep Space Nine. I'm also doing The 602 Club, our general geek show. Such a blast doing that show. Just check it out. You're going to love it. Talking about everything geeky that's not Star Trek that we love. And then, of course, you can also find the special feed we have just for Star Wars. It's called Star Wars A 602 Club Collection really enjoy that it's a lot of fun uh, just collecting all of those great star wars episodes for you guys and it has its own feed so be sure to subscribe to that i'm also doing a great show with my good friend john mills called aggressive negotiations you'll find that on the nerdparty.com or you can search for aggressive negotiations star wars podcast there in itunes we talk about anything and everything that you can think of with star wars it's a blast so make sure you do check that out well, thank you so much for joining us, and until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.